0: On this fifth anniversary of the podcast, we're going to dive back into EFS, part eight, back into the book. And we head back to Egypt this time. I had an idea where I'd tell some behind the scenes stories about the UTC, because I mean, five years and 167 episodes doesn't make together. Okay. The episodes that have come out to you guys, there is so much that's happened behind the scenes funny stuff, weird stuff. It's all happened, right? And, you know, a lot of it hasn't made it onto the mic. And I thought I'd sit down and share some stories, and I realized I can't do that by myself. Okay, that needs at least another bloke, if not two, right, to sit down and tell some behind-the-scenes stories of Unlocking the Code. I mean, there's some crazy stuff. I thought about today that we did a, a podcast on the side of a mountain with Martin Worth. And then a funeral party turned up to throw ashes off the mountain and we had to pause what we were doing while these people honoured the dead. It was such a weird experience. And that's just that's not even the tip of the iceberg of some of the things that have happened. So I'm going to do that, but that's not for tonight. Tonight we jump back into EFS and we head back to Egypt this time. It's always awesome to read the book and, and sit back down again and explore that with Angus, really enjoying those episodes. We've got some really cool interviews coming up. I'm talking to a couple of people this week and lining up some more interviews in the weeks to come. It's going to be really cool. I feel like after five years, we're finally finding our feet, finding our place in the chaos, as it were. And I really don't have the superlatives to describe how I feel about being five years old. This is a passion project that I started in order to and do something for myself and and help myself and help others. You know, because not only did I love doing my radio show back when I was a teenager, when I was a kid we used to record each other telling stories and jokes on a big double tape recording boombox from the 80s. And it was because of those both of those things that I started this to grasp back and, you know, have something for myself because you can't be the best version of yourself unless you look after yourself, unless you have things that, are just for you, you actually can't be, so have a think about what you're doing for you and just do it, right, in this crazy world of chaos you may as well, right, what are you going to lose, and take alcohol and drugs out of the equation, take any of that stuff out, what do you do just for you, and as we said way back in the day, knit doilies for all I care, but do it for you, all right. And look, nice and simply, because again, I I struggle with the superlatives and I'll start rambling. However, to my wife, to the awesome guests, I mean, wow, the awesome guests that we've had on, to all the boys and girls behind the scenes that have assisted, that have helped, that have pushed me forward, that have questioned me, you know, there's a lot of people that have never even touched these microphones that are part of this podcast externally. Thank you to you. However, thank you to the awesome listeners. I know I have listeners that have been here since the start, which means I've been in your head on and off for the last five years. So firstly, I apologise for that. However, secondly, I sincerely hope you've got something out of the show. You know, there's definitely an evolution of ideas. There's definitely a... The code is being revealed... We draw ever closer to unlocking the code. I honestly don't think we'll ever do it fully, however, with each evolvement of perspective, each tile on that mirror ball, we grow closer to be able to unlock that code. So just thank you to everyone. I can't thank you enough for your time, for your patience, for your listenership. To my awesome Patreon boys, thank you. You, You pay for the podcast. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Thank you so much. To everyone else, please be kind. Remember that we're actually all the same. Being human is what it is. And if we had kindness and understanding and respect for all people across this big blue ball hurtling through infinity, we just might have a chance to abate the chaos. And with that, we're going to go back to the first song that we ever put on the UTC, which is a, a bootleg version of Waiting to the World to Change, which I think is awesome, and get into EFS 8, and we just continue on the journey. It's just another step on the path. Look after yourselves. Be kind. Be cool. Stay safe. Prepare. Be disciplined. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Cheers. We are here again. Thanks for having me, mate. It's thanks for being back. Thanks for being had. I appreciate it. Anytime, <laughs> <a> baby. <laughs> so actually, if we're honest, because we like to be honest around here, this is the second time that we're going to record this episode. Yeah. Because we messed up the recording for the last one. So. Yeah. So. EFS 8. Ton bit dash 2. <laughs> dash 2 1.0. Dash 2 1.0. Uh, look, we're hot off the heels of talking to General Lee uh, last week, which was a lot of fun. Uh, we really appreciate that. And it was a pleasure being no, on that this was, podcast. It was a
1: good podcast. It was, he was a good, really good host. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, it was It was great being on there and just waxing lyrical about different bits and pieces, you know?
0: Yeah. And he's already on to us about part two. We've got to talk about that later. might have to. We might have to put some pen to paper for part two. Get a little deeper into deeper into a couple of more different specific points. on yeah, different yeah. points. But yeah, it was like a good that. it was a good random uh, mind dump yeah, for me. Well,
1: it was some, and it was something different for me too, man. Yeah. I haven't spoken to too many other people, so mm. that was really exciting for me as a first kind of a first time too.
0: So, yeah, it was good, yeah. man. It was good. Well, mate, uh, back into EFS eight. Uh, we couldn't remember the the articles we did last time, so we're going to do some more. We're going to do some more, right? So. I'll start, mate, uh, and it's actually one that we spoke about already, wasn't it? It's mm-hmm. the it's the sword, okay, that, that was still sharp, right? Here, I learned a trick. Watch this. Ta-da. Now it doesn't cover up anything. Ah, see Look at that? Okay, all right. Let's just bang on straight down into it. Absolutely, hey? let's go. Three thousand year old sword discovered in Denmark is still sharp. In 2016, an ancient sword was found in Denmark by two amateur archaeologists in the western part of the large Danish island of Zeeland, home to Copenhagen, in the small town of, or oh, Savol, Ernst Christensen, and Liz Therakelsen unearthed the find of a lifetime. It was not totally unheard of for people in Scandinavia and Northern Europe to find relics from the Viking Age, or even earlier, buried in the soil of their homeland. If you go onto YouTube, you can find many videos of Danes, Norwegians, Germans, or Swedes finding coins and pieces of jewelry with their metal detectors. What is rare is someone finding a sword. Though a reindeer hunter in Norway did find one simply sticking out of the ground in the area revealed by a retreating glacier. A sword in the stone. sword in the stone. However, Christensen and Thera Kelsen have got this beat. The sword they found predates the Vikings by around a 1,000 years. And on top of that, the sword was, is well-preserved and most amazingly is still sharp. The weapon was found just over a foot under the earth and had been there untouched since the Nordic Bronze Age. So it's a Bronze Age type well, sword.
1: There you go. That's yeah. a, they're a little bit tricky. and yeah. Bronze does not corrode the same way that Metal steel does, does yeah, hence yeah. why it may still have. And what are they classing as sharp? You know, Are they doing the, yeah. the old paper trick? Well... <laughs> That's right. Well, it, by the look of that edge, I don't think they are. Mm. But yeah, look, it, it has signs of an edge on it. Yes. So Yes.
0: Yes. During the last Ice Age, glaciers covered most of Europe with the exception of the Iberian Peninsula and the Mediterranean Basin. Many of the ancestors of today's Northern European peoples lived in what scientists call, call today the Iberian Refuge, today part of the Spanish Peninsula. There they lived until the weather changed and the glaciers that covered Northern Europe and the Scandinavian Peninsula began to recede. So i just approximate this at about 15,000 years ago. I probably would have said 12,800, but (laughs) what do I know? Oh, no, they were meant to be in Oh, they were actually already before that. Yeah, that's true. true. That is true. That is true. Yeah, they were supposed to be retreating. That's what opened up the gap where they apparently went through and killed all the... Mammoths, yeah. thousands and tens we of thousands. We slaughtered them. Just on every, a rage. Just on a rage. Yeah. It's just a rage, slaughtering every animal that was above 75 kilos. Everything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the last areas to become repopulated were the northern reaches of Europe and Scandinavia about 12,000 years ago. The cultures that moved into the area, like the others in Europe, were Stone Age people and it took another 10,000 years for the Bronze Age to begin. Did it. Did it, though. People in Scandinavia during this time lived in small settlements or nomadic tribal communities. To date, archaeologists have not found any Bronze Age settlements in Scandinavia that would indicate the existence of large towns or cities. The two areas of settlement were on high ground by the sea, like Zealand and Svobol, I imagine. From the evidence to date, the people of the time were both farmers and hunters, including fishing and whaling. Oxen were used for farming and dogs for herding and guarding. Horses were kept, likely only by high-status people that could afford to care for them. Tell us about the sword, man.
2: <laughs>
0: one, one of the ways... One of basic we, anthropology Yeah, exactly, here. yeah. One of the ways we know of life in Scandinavia during the Bronze Age is through petroglyphs, rock carvings, which illustrate everyday life as well as supernatural beliefs and great events. Amazingly, some of the Bronze Age petroglyphs show Nordic people on boats similar to the shape what followed later during the Viking Age. Weird, no, it's not amazingly uh is that is that the is that the sword? Because that's a different sword to the one we saw before?
1: Yeah, look, I think it might be because we've seen three two, uh, three swords, three so swords far. so far, which so one I think they're just like bronze Age swords right.
0: where's the actual sword? Uh, we also know from discoveries both in Scandinavia and in other parts of Europe that large-scale trade took place at, in Europe at the time. The notion promulgated the popular TV shows such as the History Channel's Vikings that the Norse people did not know lands to the West is utterly false. The Vikings were everywhere. Uh, The people of Scandinavia, especially Denmark, would have been familiar with goods from what today is France and England. Of course they would be. Okay. All right. So old mates holding the sword. Okay. So we imagine this must be the sword. That's actually not a bad piece. That does look like the sword that they just showed because look at the hilt yeah so is that
1: yeah yeah okay that's so that,
0: the that's the one alright okay that's a nice piece like okay it is bronze but it's still not a bad piece but
1: yeah look at like it's in
0: really good nick yeah really like good nick
1: yeah. can you zoom in Uh I
0: can do we just do that one.
1: Oh yeah Look like if you look at the edge compared to those other ones hmm. that one's really it's not clean. that bad that's
0: and the spine's intact yeah as well.
1: and it's it's straight and yeah, yeah okay. it's not badly damaged yeah, so
0: nice sword no exactly uh
1: Whoever so yeah, ma- basically, the leather that made the grip, it says there, has long since rotted away. But yeah, the rest right. of it is um, still in good nick.
0: Oh, here we go. Now we're talking about the sword, right? Hallelujah. Whoever made the Danish sword had great skill. As was mentioned, the blade was still sharp millennia later, but the pommel and the hilt of the sword, the leather that made the grip, has long since rotted away, show intricate and decorative bronze work. It does, actually. This was an expensive piece of weaponry and may not have been used in battle, but as a mark of status. Most warriors of this and later Viking times would have used axes, clubs or spears. Okay. Hmm. Over the last few years, so many finds have been made in Denmark that the Danish National Museum has a backlog of ancient discoveries that they've not been able to even start cataloging. Isn't that the story? Yeah. So, okay, nice sword. Yeah. Nice sword. Yeah. That's a cool
1: sword. But yeah. Tricky. It is tricky. Tricky because we think of swords as
0: steel. steel. Yeah. So we're like, mm.
1: How's that steel? What kind but of magic there, meteorite
0: I'm, dust is this? I was trying to pull it from the annals, you know what I mean? The ether mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about bronze. Because there was a crossover period for a little while where they had got bronze to the point where it was actually quite a good metal. But it wasn't bronze. It was like it had mixed with is copper and aluminium, isn't it? Uh, maybe
1: some tin. Tin. Thrown in there, yeah. I can't remember, but yeah, they. I can't had, remember exactly. They I'm, had I'm got no, the, no
0: No, I'm not. I was but trying I, to. I know I basically something. bronze is harder than copper. Yeah, but it's more brittle. Yeah, um, but I'm pretty sure they got their swords. That there was a crossover period where the bronze swords weren't that bad. Yep, it's just the problem is that the the Spanish steel chops was better. Half. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. Look, I think I think steel versus bronze. Uh, bronze, no... you're going to always win with steel. Yeah, whether it's a like a bad precursor to steel, like mm. when you just work out, oh fucking we yeah, we can iron put this and mix yeah. a bit of this with it, and mm. yada yada, and you start to create steel. Even a poor version of steel mm. would be better than a fucking good version of bronze. Yeah, just because of the copper element to the bronze, it's yeah. it's as hard as you can make it. It's always going to be softer mm. because of the base element. Whereas iron, I think copper's basically the the main element in bronze iron is a main element in steel, what we call steel. Mm. Um, and you look at those two together. Well, one's harder yeah, than the other. Exactly.
0: Mm. Not a bad sword though. Nah. And look, I mean and, and a foot underneath the earth. I
1: and found. for 3,000 years old, you know, that's that's a really fuck how nice how 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 uh, nice would it have excited would you be to yeah. find
0: that? And how nice would it have been when it was new? It does say something oh, yeah. about the intricate work as well. The, well you, the you see
1: there on the bottom of the hill, you can see um, some of the work there mm. that looks really cool and you know imagine it being highly polished because yeah. that's the thing with bronze it, is looks, it, really nice. it looks really polishes up really nice, good
0: yeah mm. oh well we've got uh one more oh who actually who who liked that oh, one? Hang on a good one good Hang one good on. one yes on. who
1: brought this uh this article to us
0: so the sword was shane alex martin spencer uh leslie and kirill
1: a few there tonight.
0: Mm. So thanks, guys. Really appreciate that.
1: Well, we've look got it over onto mine, my good man.
0: Yeah, we've got, uh, we're going back to stone a bit of stone hand. Yeah. Have the mouse, oh, sir. Thank you, sir. Have the mouse. Sir. I think that works better. Oops. Oh. What? Fresh pouch
1: of backy the other day. Right. I don't know what, like, what I'd been doing, but like, You know how when you get wet and dry and wet and dry, it kind of takes the oils off your hands? Yeah. So my hands were real slippery. Mm. Bought a fresh pack of backy. This thing did not want to stay in my hands. I dropped it on the floor of my truck like three times. (laughs) And every time I dropped it, the spillage like got worse. So like the third time, pretty much all the backy fell out. So I had to like pull it off the floor of my truck. So you
0: got dust, dirt, mud.
1: Bucky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sticks, stems, fucking sea, you name it. Everything's going back. i like, oh, fuck, what a shit pack of back <laughs> But yeah, this <laughs> thing just did not want to stay. It didn't want to get
0: smoked. Yeah, right.
1: All right, Stonehenge. Here we go. Where am I? Here we go. Several mysterious human-made pits have been revered, revealed near Stonehenge. We've got uh, Carly Casella fucking to thank for this. Nice authorage. Um, article's been released on the 13th of May, 2022. Stonehenge has been intensively studied for centuries. Yet even now, we are still discovering new aspects of this famous site. An archaeological biopsy of the surrounding landscape has revealed a hidden network of large pits encircling the stone structure. The study is the first extensive electromagnetic induction survey of the region, and yeah, it is some ha- of that electromagnetic induction over some of the stuff we've seen down here. Mm, That'd be good. Probably costly if this is Yeah, Mm, yeah, costly. And it has helped archaeologists uncover hundreds of large pits, each over 2.4 metres, buggy feet, wide. Some of these were most certainly made by human hands thousands of years ago. What these large pits were used for is unknown. But even the lack of utilitarian functions associated with the holes researchers suspect they were somehow related to the long-term ceremonial structuring of Stonehenge. Other ancient pits discovered near the car park of the old Stonehenge Visitor Center date to about 8000 BCE and are associated with totem poles, props for hunting orcs, a type of extinct cattle, and a lunar observation. Stonehenge itself was only built about 5,000 years ago.
0: Was it? Mm. Was it? Really?
1: By combining new geophysical survey techniques with coring and pinpoint excavation, the team has revealed some of the earliest evidence of human activity yet unearthed in the Stonehenge landscape, says archaeologist Nick Snashel, who works for the Stonehenge and Avebury World Heritage Site. The discovery of the largest known early Mesolithic pit in Northwest Europe shows that this was a special place for hunter-gatherer communities thousands of years before the first stones were erected. So, look, man, sacred sites are sacred, sacred sites. Yeah,
0: that's right. Good spot's a good a spot. Good spot is a good spot, mate.
1: <laughs> Prehistoric pit deposits are common archaeological structures in the United Kingdom and Northwest Europe, but they're usually no wider or deeper than a metre. Oval pits greater than 2.4 metres wide are very rare, but around Stonehenge and the near Durrington Wallshenge, they seem to be unusually concentrated. We didn't see
0: what the pits were for, did they?
1: No, no, they don't know what the pits were for. Right. Because obviously... Uh, I don't know when this dig occurred or if they've, you know, is that for those who can't see, I'm pointing at a picture um, on the screen. Is that a picture of the actual, is there the dig site that's there? Um, Does look, if you look in the middle of that one at the top of the screen. Yeah. It does look like there's a dark oval patch in the middle of that. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So possibly this is the dig we're talking about, Mm. but maybe they haven't processed what's come out of them. If it's a recent dig. Because they've said they can't really, they yeah, they not say yeah. what it's for.
0: So nine pits, it says. Mm.
1: So what did they even find anything in there, or is it just a pit, like a
0: an oval pit? Look, is a fire pit maybe? I mean, what is it? Yeah. Okay.
1: Who knows? But anyway, sorry guys, I'll continue reading. In the recent survey of Stonehenge, geophysical sensors and direct archaeological investigation detected. 415 large pits over a 2.5-kilometre-squared area. When the researchers excavated nine such pits, now here we go, we, we jumped the gun, yeah. six were found to be human-made a long time ago. Two were natural occurrences, and one was a recent agricultural deposit. The sheer abundance of these structures is a kind of prehistoric activity not previously recognised at Stonehenge or in North West Europe more generally the round pits range in date from the early Mesolithic circa 8000 BCE to the middle bronze age circa 1300 BCE and they are mostly concentrated on the higher ground to the east and west of Stonehenge the oldest and largest of the pits is more than 3 metres wide and 1.85 metres deep
0: 6 foot that's not bad
1: now for the people at home who can see this There's a little uh, picture of the actual dig itself. The largest pit found around Stonehenge dug into chalk bedrock. There you go. Yeah, right. Here we go. So what we're seeing is not a snapshot of one moment in time. The traces we see in our data span millennia as indicated. Okay. Hang on a minute. What traces? No, no. I just, I just got an idea. See how these are oval? Yeah. And they span millennia, right, from 8,000 BCE to 1,300 BCE. Yeah. What if these were like huts?
0: That's, I was thinking that.
1: And over time, they just build up, build up, build up. Yeah. Every, the, the ground around them is all building up. Yeah. They were
0: huts. Yeah, there was, yeah. there was a, it, I, I had the same thought. Was it like a... A village or something, you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: yeah. If there's a high concentration mm. on the higher ground, yada yada yada.
0: And if you weren't going to stay warm, you'd build into the ground as well. Well,
1: yeah, exactly. But also, like, did they build down, or did they? Is this a uh, flooring of type? Have they compacted it? Is that have they imported that material to like build it up? And
0: yeah, maybe. Interesting, eh? Yeah, because it yeah doesn't really. That's you know, I, where was
1: I? What we're seeing is not a snapshot of one moment in time. The traces we see in our data span millennia, as indicated by the 7,000-year timeframe between the oldest and the most recent prehistoric pits. Either that or it might be shit pits.
0: Well, that was the other thing that I was thinking. <laughs> I, I did, that did cross my mind.
1: <laughs> From early Holocene hunter-gatherers to later Bronze Age inhabitants of the farms and field system – the archaeology we're detecting is the result of complex and ever-changing occupation of the landscape. But a bing The ability for sensor technology to scan a landscape and reveal potential archaeological sites is giving us an unprecedented view of prehistoric landscapes. Stonehenge is just the start. The study was published in the Journal of Archaeological Science. Yeah, right. What are you doing? Oh, is that the end? Ah, that's why you're reaching out. Yes, you're one step ahead of me. Very um, good, my good man. Yeah, uh, so that's that's interesting. That's you know, it's good to see mm. um, new technologies. I'm, I'm mostly yeah the technology excited about that technology. technology because apart from identifying these sites, right? Obviously, mm. that's what they're using to identify them. If you just purely used it to collect a, a map, mm-hmm. there would there would also be a certain pattern. To yeah. which you could, if you were to discover these sites without yeah. even excavating them mm-hmm. and then just lay them out mm-hmm. over the map of the area, mm-hmm. you'd be able to see different concentrations and what might come out of it. You might end up finding like trails in between the, the, the round areas. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, it it yeah, might yeah. give you a better overview and you might be able to sort of if you, if you, lead if you, towards something.
0: If you mix like LIDAR with the electromagnetic scanning, you know, like if you mix the two uh, the two well, disciplines I don't together. The,
1: because the countryside
0: yeah, I suppose the not lidar really is penetrating big, anything. Yeah, because it's pretty open. Countryside, yeah. yeah. And it's not penetrating the ground. Well, I mean, yeah. I suppose we always talk about LIDAR down here because of the canopy. Canopy.
1: Yeah. Exactly. It's penetrating the canopy mm. with the to the hard contours of the, ground, the, underneath. the ground underneath it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. But you yeah, look interesting. I mean, what I found about that one is it sort of told us a lot without telling us anything yeah yeah
1: well written well written yeah it
0: didn't really tell us
1: we don't have much information so a basically bit like the, aussie, the aussie thing we were saying before you know keep it simple yeah we don't have a lot of information but know, we've got a
0: lot of hand gestures speak, speaking of aussie i was just like look at over here look at yeah, yeah. look i you know what that when my dad i dug another hole yeah that's basically all they've done right they go into the thing and they just dug another hole yeah right no. what'd
1: you do today dug a hole dug a hole <laughs> then what'd you do filled it back in yeah filled it hey. back in
0: we're gonna do tomorrow Dig another hole. Dig another hole. I'll Any- put some water in it next time. Yeah, i might make a pool. Get a top. <laughs> uh, thanks to Shane, Alex, Leslie, and Ben for that one. Very Thank cool. you, people. Right, oh, well, that's the articles out of the way, mate. We'll um I think bang on. Where's the rocket clock, mate? i oh, just do, do, do. did you do the rocket clock? I have not done the rocket clock. Set
1: the rocket oh, clock. It mate. Top pocket. There I we go. will
0: um bonjour. So we're jumping back into Earth's Forbidden Secrets. Now we finished but we finished somewhere else last time, but we can't find that. So before that we finished and we're in Egypt, right? I think we were talking about the Sphinx, the erosion of the Sphinx, you know, the fact that we'd seen that type of erosion uh, here in Australia in clay base and that sort of stuff, the water erosion stuff. Yeah. And I think he was going to start to get into astronomical alignments and stuff. I think that's sort of where we were at. Uh, and it ended with, and let's face it, folks, it's really the only defense they have. which is basically ignoring that the enclosure is 10,000 plus years old. So you take it
1: from there, my good man? I'll
0: do so, mate. The fact that no such erosion is visible anywhere on the pyramids is also a serious issue. for contention between that means that the Sphinx may have even been there before the Great Pyramid, in fact, well before it. This is also an arena that Egyptologists view as very dangerous ground and flatly refuse to enter into. Any attempt to raise the issue invariably produces a wave of scathing and usually very personal and unscientific attacks punctuated by numerous brandishing of degrees. It is opening up though, right? There seems to be a bit of a shifting of the guard in Egypt, right? I mean, Muhammad's releasing more about the glyphs. You know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff. There seems to be a, a bit of an involvement. However, by and large, it's still sort of the same. Of course, one must remember that the pyramids were all encased with smooth weathered and much hardened limestone, and that this may well have served for protection of the three monuments during any great rains or floods, thus preventing any visible signs of water erosion, while the Sphinx would have been left exposed to any damaging floodwaters. However, according to West and others, the entire Giza complex can be accurately dated by simply studying the astronomical alignments of the various monuments. The reason astronomy can so easily be used for this task is because astronomy, ritual, and reincarnation were such very important parts of the Egyptian belief system. I don't know why I paused there. And many believe that the basis of the entire ancient Egyptian culture, the Egyptians believed heavily in the duality the God self. Between heaven and earth, they considered the kingdom of God, Osiris, to be a very specific place in the heavens. The duality and the nature of the duat itself are very well explained in a book entitled Initiation by elizabeth Hiak, hiach the book hiach aptly explains the egyptian reincarnation beliefs which include the various levels of discipline that must be attained in order to reach the ship house place planet of millions of years hiach believes that the pyramid featured very significantly in this process and that the king's chamber was actually an initiation chamber that's right she says that the initiate who had attained high enough level of enlightenment could line the actual sarcophagus and be able to meditate through all their incarnations without the need of living them, embalming them to then reach enabling. enabling that's I'm oh, sorry, right? You're
1: right, man. Enabling. Oh, you hit a moment. I so. know,
0: I know. I was like, you said, I'm just going to do that. Here we go. Look at that. Make it a bit bigger for old fellas. Okay, the old boys. Enabling them People to to reach their final incarnation with the gods. <laughs> who reside within the Dua. And that is, I'm pretty sure, the only thing that we've got. The Great Pyramid was built to transmit consciousness from the Earth to the stars.
1: There you go.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. I think, it could be. Yeah. There's some pictures of the erosion there. Uh, he cl- claims that the shape of the pyramid and the unusual placement of the blocks within the ceiling of the King's Chamber designed in such a way that certain cosmic energies are channeled through the stonework and concentrated at one end of the sarcophagus. The center of this concentrated energy lies precisely where a person's pineal gland would be if they were laying in the enclosure. We know where the pineal gland is, okay? Uh, Or we could read that. The pineal gland lies at the front center section of the brain between the frontal lobes, kind of between and behind the eyes and seems to serve no real biological function. It produces DMT. The gland is also known as the third eye. In Eastern cultures, it's believed to have high spiritual receptor when awakened. It's also referred to as the impaired eye. As one of my friends
1: used to say, who, who liked to indulge in psychedelics, he would
0: polish his pineal gland. <laughs> Give the pineal gland a bit of a polishing. Yeah, right. It's pretty much what you're doing.
1: Got to open that third eye, man. Well, I mean,
0: what's, that's, that's what that is above us. Yeah. Bloody earth, man. All right, that's what that's above us. Such a theory is not entirely without interest as unusual concentrations of energies within the king's chamber have actually been reported by various people. Yeah, there is some sort of energy coming out of the top of the pyramid, through those plates. Mm-hmm. Um, it is quite strange for the roof of the king's chamber to be constructed in such a fashion as it serves no purpose in regards to strengthening the structure. It seems like it would, it would have been an awful lot of trouble to build. The cavities were hidden within the structure until they were found during an excavation in search of treasure. It is thought that the ancient Egyptians believed the Jewat to be a place where man could live in the mortality with the gods and that the soul of a man could reach this place through knowledge and ritual. Many believed that they also believed that the Jew was a specific place in the sky, namely the stars <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. of Sirius and Orion's belt. Just a bit of a segue in the giggle we had. There's, I had a bit of an interesting moment tonight before we started where two stars, well, I thought, you know, Oh, look, oh, we want to see a UFO, man. So we, we investigate any anomalies that we see in the sky. Yeah. And the problem is here is that it's been cloudy for the last month. So the stars have shifted because the seasons have shifted. And I was looking, what are those two stars there? And what was one of them?
1: It was Sirius. Very bright, very twinkly
0: little bastard. Yeah, Sirius. Uh, Hancock and Baval believe the Giza structures were built as an earthly representation of the Jew and placed in a way that would intentionally mirror the Jew on the earth at the time of construction. As is known to us, and as was also known to the ancient Egyptians, due to the axial wobble, the Earth experiences a gradual movement of the stars across the skies. This gradual movement is called the precession of the equinoxes and is what gives us the changing signs of the zodiac. This precession can be calculated by marking the slow rotation of the stars against the vernal equinox. It takes 2,160 years for one house of the zodiac to move completely past the vernal point. An entire precession through all the ages of the zodiac Takes twenty nine thousand. It's five hundred and twenty years, not nine twenty. Hancock and Bavale used computer model to simulate the axial wall and determine exactly when the Giza complex would represent an accurate depiction of the duat on Earth. In the Keeper of the Genesis, they had this to say, and that's right. We're vibrating through dimensions. We're reading a book. Reading a book. Reading a book. What is required in order to achieve the ideal ground-sky arrangement is somehow to rotate the heavens in an anti-clockwise direction. The vast engine of the Earth's axial wobble offers us a mechanism by which it can be done. We only need to instruct our computer to track the processionally induced movements of the stars backwards in time. As it does so, millennia by millennia, we observe that the orientation of Orion's belt a culmination of slowly rotating anti-clockwise and thus approaching ever closer to our design meridian-to-meridian match. Is not until 10,000 BC, 8,000 years before the Pyramid Age, that the perfect correlation is achieved with the Nile mirroring the Milky Way and the three pyramids and the three belt identically disposed to the same meridian. Now, we know that uh, Steve Myers vehemently disagrees with the Orion correlation. Yeah, um, yeah,
1: which is fine. You know, theories be theories. Theories be theories, man.
0: Everyone's got their perspective, right? That's right. Uh, I did ask him about all the other alignments on the Giza Plateau, and he didn't really have much to say about that. However, could be, could be. You know, the thing is, we don't
1: look. What do we? What's our main aim here? Is just to explore the horizons ideas. Yeah. and keep keep our minds open to absolutely. different theories. Absolutely. You know, there's even there's even good elements of of, of factual solidness in in the uh, mainstream Egyptology. Um, Egyptology, absolutely. You yeah, know what I mean, without a doubt. So. Yeah, it's just when it gets into prehistory that it gets a bit shaky. Yeah, timelines and, and stuff it's, like that. Enlarge like it. Let's, larger, let's yeah. just open our minds. So mm-hmm. Let's not block things out because everything could have an element of
0: truth. Absolutely. I think it does. It's not that you know, it's back to the mirror ball. The only way we're actually going to figure it out is if we fill that mirror ball up because then we've got all the perspectives. And then well, what are we it'll really it'll trying to, to be? It.
1: We're trying to be the opposite of what the paradigm is currently. Yeah. You know, you get locked onto one idea and that's, and that's it, it, and that's the end. That's the end. And there's nothing else. And it's yeah. like, well. As our technologies are improving, don't you think we should open, our, open, open, our. open up our theories yeah. to be tested?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. You
1: know, that's that's just where we're coming from at this point in time. Just mm. open your mind up to, to mm. all of the theories.
0: Mm. Mm. Uh, there is a feature of this 10,500 oh, 10, 10, BC correlation, which suggests strongly that coincidence is not involved. The pattern that is frozen into monumental architecture in the form of the pyramids marks a very significant moment in the 25,920, oh yeah, 25,920, not 29,920. I knew there was a wrong number in there. 25,920 year procession cycle of the three stars of Orion's belt, one that is unlikely to have been selected at random by the pyramid builders. The question reduced to this, is it a coincidence that the Giza necropolis, as it has reached us today out of the darkness of antiquity, is still dominated by a huge equinoctial lion statue. Is that right? I don't know. That'll do. not know that will do that do. At the east of the horizon and by three gigantic pyramids disposed about its meridian in the distinctive manner of the three stars of Orion's belt at 10,500 BC. And is it also coincidence that the monuments in this amazing astronomical theme park managed to work together as though almost geared like the cogs of a wheel of a clock to tell the same time? When this information was coupled with the Western shock water erosion evidence, the picture was complete for them. But When Western shock completed testing their theory and first excitedly announced the results of the investigations to the world, the outcry was almost deafening and the barrage of criticism overwhelming. Egypt's top archaeologist, Dr. Zahi Hawass, interesting, he sort of, he he went up and down in this period and he sort of, he's there, thereabouts now. But another renowned archaeologist, Dr. Mark Lena, and Lena was the guy that just dismissed. Remember, he, he was the scoffer.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: Right. that was him that was his argument who yeah. was considered the world's foremost authority on the Sphinx were quick to launch into scathing personal attacks on the pair and publicly discredited the theory as much as possible Dr. Lena even went as far as to accuse Western Shock of being ignorant and insensitive Well, that, my paycheck yeah now just think about that for a moment science insensitive is, is, is it a somewhat unusual remark to come from a scientist, don't you think? His sole intent was to remove the issue from the scientific arena and place it on a more personal playing field. As usual, in many such cases, it was a public display of a most unscientific attitude that completely failed to address any of the evidence that was being presented. The whole affair was similar to a schoolboy who had a drawing criticized by one of his peers rather than the scientist debating the evidence. For heaven's sake, insensitive, get some sort of scientific grip.
1: On it. Well said, Max. Yeah, Pass us the mouse, my good
0: man. Oh yeah, good. I'll take yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Remember, these ones are longer. We're not sure, eh? Yeah. Appreciate that.
1: That's all right, mate. That's all right. Um, I enjoyed some tobacco, so it's it's yeah. only it's only fair we share and share alike. These, yeah, these, these personal attacks we are now seeing so frequently are actually a high political strategy that has recently been adopted by academia and are fast becoming the standard final move now let's not forget when did we think this book was written Early 2000s 2005ish I yeah, guess 345 somewhere in there the method is often employed by cunning politicians when losing an argument if an issue becomes too obvious to argue against the best tactic is to discredit anyone who dares to call that which is accepted into question Thereby shifting attention away from the actual issue and turning it into a more personalised attack against the presenter. We're coming up to an yeah, election, we're in, election in like three days' time, yeah. And all <laughs> we have seen is sla- uh What are they? S- slandering? Is it slandering? Yeah, what are those- it's- Oh my God! That's it's like. On the tip of my tongue, it's one of my, you know, a something campaign, yeah, smear, smear campaign. campaign that's, that's all it's
0: been, man. Yeah. That's, I haven't did you heard see,
1: policy. All I've heard is how bad see, the other um, guy
0: look, is. This is. This is going to date, however, it's still funny, ScoMo, who has our current Prime Minister, crash tackled a kid today.
1: No. He did. Really? Really. This, I'll show you later. This guy, you yeah. know, he's got the welding mask. <laughs> that's not my job. The, and I mean,
0: <laughs> if you can't rent a house, buy one. Yeah. Um yeah.
1: He, he's just he's just so
0: good. And yeah. let it be said, let yes, yeah, great. Let it be said here. I mean, this will date, right? So if there's a landslide either way in this weekend's election, I think we need to have a serious discussion about electoral fraud.
1: Well, not only that, but let's, you know, let's not, not just focus on SCOMO. Like it's it There's it, no one. It nearly mirrors like the what have we got? Nothing. What do we got? And we no got one. bags and nothing. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Like, let's, yeah. Anyway, let's, anyway, let's, yeah, let's, political leaders, eh? Yeah. Hey? Bloody hell. It's the Emperor's New Clothes Syndrome. Yes. The in Emperor the case of the no Giza clothes. complex, rather than having to argue a, a case they are aware they could not possibly win, Hawass and Lena again simply invoke the demeanor of untouchable authority that is presumed by their positions in the academic hierarchy it should be mentioned here that Anthony West himself actually holds no credentials being a self-taught archaeologist and so is not part of the club so to speak though even with this being the case his research on the Sphinx was nothing short of excellent and his findings were backed up by a considerable amount of scientific geological and astronomical data it probably should also be pointed out That Albert Einstein was just a patent clerk when he destroyed many of Newton's theories. Back then, intelligence was intelligence. Things are not quite as simple now. (laughs) That is true. Shortly after the theory was put forth, the American Association for the Advancement of Science invited a a debate on the issue. But only Lena and Schock were allowed to participate, while West, who held most of the evidence was not due to his lack of credentials as was discussed in chapter one. This is another method. The academic community constantly employs to keep credible new information and theories out of the public information loop. Academia decrees that only people with degrees and doctorates are permitted to practice science. And they have two very important and quite simple filters in place to ensure that the independent research is suppressed. One credentials and two peer review because no matter what your evidence or theories are nothing gets past peer review but you cannot perceive peer review without first having credentials but of course in order to get credentials you need to toe the party line and embrace the accepted theories or you simply won't get your degree in the first place so what do you do remember catch 22 It's actually quite brilliant in its simplicity in some scary way. Again, this is a ridiculous and extraordinarily unscientific approach to science because science is something that anyone can study and learn. All that is needed for one to possess a keen and analytical mind. A person does not need a degree to educate oneself or record facts or to conduct experiments, observe their outcomes and think about them in a critical way.
0: I mean, haven't we seen that? I do think when you were saying that, I was like, I think podcasting in this medium has opened up a lot of amateur researchers. Definitely. You know, YouTube, 100%. podcasting, you know. Well,
1: well social media in yeah. a way opened up the platform. Mm-hmm. It opened up the, the, the stage. Mm-hmm. It gave everyone a stage. Yeah, it gave everyone a stage. Yeah. Gave everyone a stage. And then moving into uh, podcasting, if you can stand the test of time, mm-hmm. you might be putting out something half decent yeah. sort of thing. So yeah. yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's opened up a lot of avenues. Mm.
0: And there's more theories that are coming to light as well. 100%. That are, And more guys like us, you know, like we, we look at this stuff, we do our own research, we crisscross it and we analyze it, you know, and there's a lot of us like out there doing that. Exactly. And we're coming to very similar conclusions as well. Like the ideas are becoming the ideas. You know what I mean?
1: No, I agree. Mm. In a truly free and open society where the pursuit of true knowledge is nurtured, science by its very basic fabric needs to be part of the free democratic process and all theories examined. Science was never designed to be an elitist club presided over by closed minds. Such behavior is truly irresponsible and can only ever serve as a hindrance to legitimate research and the genuine pursuit of real truths. Science cannot properly function as an authoritarian regime. The thing is that the entire debate over the real age of the pyramids and the Sphinx could very easily be put to rest and for all of the Egyptologists really wanted to settle the dispute. They simply need to hire a team of independent and impartial investigators to either prove or disprove the theory once and for all. Why hasn't this been done? And why are they so against anyone doing it? I
0: just had a bit of a recall. I'm pretty sure Shock and West were kicked out of Egypt
1: for a period between then and now. Oh, they've definitely been hindered yeah. over their time, mm. 100%. Mm. And if not kicked out, they're excluded from different areas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not allowed to take equipment. That's that it. Stuff. Yeah. Not allowed to conduct certain experiments, et cetera, et cetera. The answer is so blatantly obvious that the question doesn't really need asking. It's because the answer is so, oh, I've started it. Started. They know their theory is totally wrong. And they know that any real study into this site will prove this. And when our whole theory of history will become crashing down. That is why they go to such extraordinary lengths to prevent anyone from conducting tests. And they know that they know will prove them wrong don't let us forget that it's the theories of Dr. Hawass and Dr. Lena that are being threatened here. It is they who are the ones who virtually control all Egyptology. Imagine their embarrassment if it could be publicly demonstrated that they are both incorrect in their theories. Not only that, but it would seem they're also quite aware of the facts and still continually go to extraordinary lengths to keep the real truth hidden. From public view mm. i think it's high time the world asked them to present the evidence that proves them incorrect and demonstrate to us how it outweighs the far more abundant evidence that proves them wrong because so far their theories have never been independently and publicly scrutinized the good doctors have simply brandished their credentials and their arguments have been taken at face value and simply accepted without the need for them to present any corroborating proof. Do you want me to take over? Uh, Give me a minute. No worries. This type of approach to science is unacceptable and can in no way be construed as serious research. The fact of the matter is that the entire Giza complex is a complete mystery and probably still remains so simply simply because Egyptologists will not open it up to serious research. The timeframe academia has provided for construction of the monuments makes no sense at all. The pyramids were an incredible architectural achievement and yet the quality of all subsequent constructions in the area steadily declined. Mm. Don't builders usually improve with experience? Why then does the opposite apply in Egypt? The simple truth is that the site was not built by them. John Anthony actually summed the whole thing up eloquently in his book, Serpent in the Sky. Every aspect of Egyptian knowledge seems to have been complete at the very beginning. The sciences, artistic and architectural techniques and the hieroglyphic system that show virtually no signs of a period of development. Indeed, many of the achievements of the earliest d- dynasties were never surpassed Mm -hmm. or even equaled later on. Mm -hmm. This astonishing fact is readily admitted by orthodox Egyptologists, but the magnitude of the mystery it poses is skillfully understated. While its many implications go unquestioned, how does a civilization spring full-blown into being? Look at the 1905 automobile and compare it to a modern one. There is no mistaking the process of development, but in Egypt, there are no parallels. Everything is right there at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The answer of the mystery is of course, obvious, but because it is repellent to the prevailing cast of modern thinking, it is seldom seriously considered. Egyptian civilization was not a development, but a legacy.
0: So two things rest in peace, John. And, the other thing is, I think "Serpent in the Sky" needs to go on the list,
1: hundred percent. And I really that that was really well written mm. that last that last section there, and it was really well put. Mm. Um, I I really like we we need to remember um, the types of explorers since Napoleon through to modern day yes. that kind of ha- have unearthed. Uh, Egypt Mm. and the the times in which this was done Mm. and the technology they had and the viewpoints on uh, anthropology that they had Mm. at the time, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. these things are dated. So they really do, do need a review if nothing else, yeah you know? And I feel like, honestly, I feel like we're coming up to that time as, as we said, the, the, the low-level scientist yeah. around the world yeah. is building because it's so easy now mm. to sort of troll through the research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the people like you and I, we're gaining in numbers mm. and we're asking the questions. Mm. And it feels like the pressure that we apply to those houses yeah. built on foundations of sand That's right. are crumbling. Mm. Um, and, you know, these guys are getting older. Mm. They can't defend it all their whole life. And the new guys are coming through underneath and they're pushing forward some and, really good theories and,
0: and good evidence as well. And really good
1: evidence. Yeah. Exactly. And we're latching onto those mm. more than that older paradigm.
0: Well, I mean, I imagine, uh, I don't, I don't know whether Muhammad would have, would have put out a video with the Gosford glyphs five mm-hmm. or six years ago.
1: Yep. Exactly.
0: That's, you know, right. that's a, that's a perfect example there. Right. Not that long ago, that would have not, that would have been seen as, you know, negative blasphemy, blasphemy.
1: And not only that, like not worth your time because Mm. it's, it's, so far outside of the paradigm, yeah. Egyptians did not go to Australia. Yeah, so you know, like, don't even look there, it's obviously a hoax.
0: Yeah, yeah, but then you look into you'll it, you'll
1: only discredit yourself. That's What's right, putting your name to it. But then you dig into it, and there's multiple lines of evidence. It's not a and and like Muhammad has said, like, when he he looked at the glyphs, he hmm. was like, he picked out certain bits and pieces where it's like, it's obvious that whoever wrote this was not of a high stature, he yeah. was like a working man because there's like bits slang. of slang yeah. in amongst it That's right. and stuff like that. And cool. only a learned person like Muhammad would be able to pick up on that.
0: Where really do we say you'd have to be a professor of hieroglyphs to even grasp the understanding of it? Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Academics like Dr. Alina, despite the dispute, despite dispute the age of the pyramids or Sphinx as being circa 10,500 BC because they simply say that a man had no civilization at the period of our history and maybe they're right but what if it was not the civilization of man who constructed them what if they're actually constructed by all by those who all had <laughs> the ancient tales to tell what if they were built by the ancient rulers who were bought, who were thought as of gods <laughs> you're not helping me man <laughs> ignore <laughs> me man i'm just doing
1: product I know, I
0: know i understand in the in the actual builders and true function of the great pyramid may be far more controversial and amazing than anyone could ever imagine and will be discussed later in this book. But for now, the discussion will turn to how it may well have been done. Okay, oh, that's right, the stone synthesis. Yes, cool. Stone synthesis according to the ancients. Egyptologists have long claimed that no ancient records exist that describe how the pyramids were built yet around the age of 17. I became aware of another very curious stellar that is engraved on a stone on the island of Sihil, near the Elephantine, north of Aswan in Egypt. Mohammed goes on about that too. eh? For some strange reason, this stella known as the Famine Stella has never been deemed worthy of serious research by scholars is merely considered to be an interesting oddity by the Society of Egyptology. Yet after even a cursory investigation of the artefact, one cannot help but question the unfathomable reasoning behind this conclusion. The Famine Stellar actually describes an ancient method for manufacturing limestone. It names the aggregates needed for the raw material and the plant extracts that are required to then bond the mixture of aggregates together. Could the pyramids have actually been cast instead of built by teams of men manoeuvring hewn blocks? Maybe. There's definitely some stone melting or stone aggregation going on. It
1: keeps popping up.
0: Mm. Stone melting
1: is just popping up lately.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but surely the fact... That such a stella even exists should give scholars a reason to at least examine the methods described in the ancient text to see if there is any validity to them. Indeed, I believe the famine stella needs to be made subject to some very serious and rigorous research before being so readily dismissed. The simple fact that the people of ancient times bothered to write this text down carved in stone so it would last a very long time, why do we write stuff in stone, coupled with the fact that the Stella describes such a thing as manufacturing stone should be given cause for even the mentally obtuse <laughs> to consider it worthy of some serious investigation. I love uh, Max's yeah. mentally obtuse. Yeah. I need to call someone mentally obtuse. The Famine Stella was discovered in 1889 by C.E. Wilber and was subsequently deciphered by various scholars, first Brooks in 1891, then Polite in 1891, Morgan in 1894, Seath in 1901, and finally by Bargay or Bar-Gut, Gut. I don't know, in 1953. Barget, Barget. Maybe. Maybe. We'll go with that. The hieroglyphic text was then examined and the previous translations were all compared with each other. Unfortunately, the cellar is slightly incomplete and somewhat damaged with a section that has been broken off near the top, but we can still glean enough information from what it does exist to kind of fill in the blanks. One third of the stela deals with the building of monuments involving three of the most renowned characters in ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh Zoza, the scribe Imhotep and the God Kunum. The remainder of the stela speaks of various aggregates and plant extracts to be used in the process of manufacturing stone, possibly even for the monuments mentioned. I mean, looking at those large statues, you could say they were cast. It'd be a way to make it Perfect. You know yeah, what I
1: mean? Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. You know? um, it's easier to get a softer material perfect mm. um, than it is like a hard one. And then if you were to um, aggregate something into that mold.
0: Just cast it, yeah. Yeah. And then tidy it up. You know what I mean? 100%. The text contained in this unique artifact has almost exclusively been considered to be interesting but fanciful and has been dismissed as a topic of no real use to any serious investigator of an, Egyptian antiquities. Yet in studying the Stella, an intriguing question emerges. What would happen if we actually tried tried it and did what they described? Could the stone of the pyramids have actually been mixed and poured in, into place at the site using plant extraction aggregates available in Egypt? And also, would such aggregates and extracts have been available at the location of the time of their construction? The answer to both of these questions is a very resounding yes, they could have quite easily. So surely if one can follow methods described in the famine stellar and in doing create a mixture that will solidify into a stone comparable texture and composition to the stone used in the pyramids, then it is not conceivable that it is, the, is most likely the method, then it is, is it not conceivable that it is the most likely method that it was used in their construction, indeed is the only real possible way it could have been done. The true answer as to how the monuments were constructed may have suddenly become quite blatantly obvious. Indeed, it would appear that the builders even wrote, wrote it down for us. The question is, why is this stellar being ignored by egyptology? Because it doesn't suit the narrative. Uh, modern, t- oh, that's right. We, yeah, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to when we read this last time. Limestone. Yes. Yeah. Then at last, someone came to the fore with a radical new theory in the form of, now familiar form of Professor Joseph Davidovitz of the Geopolymer Institute, who has also proposed the plant extract theory in the mine process. And again, all credit must be given to the man. 10 points. 10 points, Mr. DeVivitz. The professor wrote a fascinating report in 1998 in which he proposed the idea that the pyramids were indeed constructed using aggregated limestone rather than by manipulating quarried blocks. His theory was then fully published in 1999 in a book entitled The Pyramids and Enigma Solved. But the limestone is just the casing stone. That's not the.
1: That's what we we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's not the granite. It's not the granite. It's not the basalt. No. It's... So, yeah. Aggregate some granite.
0: Cover it? stones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. By all means. Yeah. And it, I do remember they go on to mm. state about um, fossils being found. And yes. That's like that. right. And that's it right. Kind of explains a little bit to do with that. Yeah. So, that's an interesting part up next. Yeah. So, yeah. The whole pyramid. I don't know, but mm. um, definitely, mm. by all means, I'm I'm firm on the belief that, yeah, the limestone could have been done.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, in the book, he put forth a very sound, though academically radical theory that outcrops of relatively soft limestone could have been quarried and easily disaggregated with water and then muddy limestone sludge, including the fossil shells mixed with the lime and some kind of tecto-alumino silicate forming materials such as kaolin clay, silt, or the Egyptian salt. Natron, which is basic sodium carbonate the limestone mud could then easily have been carried up by the bucket and then poured packed and rammed into formwork molds made of wood stone clay or brick that had been erected on the pyramid sides the re-agglomerated limestone thus bonded by basic geochemical reaction into a substance known as geopolymer cement would then have hardened into resistant limestone blocks as it dried actually solidifying into a substance a great deal harder and stronger than the original starting material. Critics of this theory argue that Davidovitz had never proved that Giza limestone really is geopolymer. And of course, it's impossible to do because neither he nor anyone else has ever been to prove any material for testing. And they firmly state that the fact that, th- that state the fact that the limestone blocks at Giza contain intact fossil remains substantially proves they cannot be manufactured by stone or geopolymers, but are in fact hewn blocks of natural limestone. Interestingly, no one specifies exactly what they think of the intact fossil shells in the pyramid blocks proves that they are not manufactured blocks. As even the most fundamental knowledge of the Davidovits, the the vid- the vid- the vid- I remember having trouble with this last time, cast stone theory clearly suggests that it was the Giza quarries themselves where else that provided limestone rubble for the aggregates of the pyramid blocks. Such intact fossils actually exist in abundance in the limestone of the Giza quarries. Since that time scientists at the Jepolm Institute have successfully managed to manufacture and cast re agglomerated limestone agglomerated, agglomerated. Oh, that's right I'm Having flashbacks agglomerated It's a tough one man. It is man there's I, so I, many letters there's so there. many letters there because it is of course prohibited to remove any material from the site of the actual pyramid for testing for the purpose of the test the scientists selected a soft material containing high percentage of fossilized shells from quarry in France to ensure that geological material used in the experiment was very similar to that which is found in the quarries of giza Plateau in Egypt. The purpose of the test was to demonstrate that this type of soft limestone is indeed perfect for, for re-agglomeration. Agglomeration. The scientists then disaggregated the material with water, then they mixed the muddy limestone and fossil shells with kaolin clay in basic, and a basic chair of polymeric binder. So it's like salt or the, the bicarbonate, yeah? Uh, yeah,
1: so the bicarbonate is also a limestone. Yeah, because limestone's all like
0: yeah, different. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah
1: but yeah. the 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 fact that they're saying muddy limestone, mm. so it's like a silt, like a silt deposit. Yeah. that they're that they're like mining because it's like soft and it's mm. the one that has the fossils in it. Yeah, and then and they're mixing they're the hardest rubble clay, um, and a basic geo. Polymeric binder mm. which would act like the cement powder mm. that's binding it all together as well as the limestone because the limestone likes to react like that as well yeah
0: yeah it was then packed into a pyramid shaped mold the re-agglomerated limestone they created bonded by a geochemical reaction then hardened into resistant geopolymer limestone block it turned out to be a great deal harder than the original starting material exactly as they predicted it would that's right there's that weird pyramid looking thing there it was very notable that the whole process had the effect of strengthening the softer stone, thereby making it more resistant to such things as weather pollution, acid rain, temperature. Variations and all the things that would generally just mess up your megalithic monument. And yeah, there's a picture there. I might try and copy those and, and um, yeah. So yeah.
1: They're making a type of concrete. Yeah. Basically. They're just making concrete. Because limes are a large percentage of concrete mm. mixed with uh fly ash and stuff like that. So Oh, uh,
0: we had a discussion last time about volcanic ash, didn't we? Well wasn't
1: that wasn't that something that we something about Roman concrete? Yes, it was being, volcanic being ash better or yeah. or stronger yeah. than, than what our concrete was? Because
0: of the volcanic ash.
1: Exactly. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, it's without take the ash out of the process, but mm. they're using clay and then like a lime to set it all off to Mm -hmm. to create the the, uh, chemical reaction.
0: All right, let's have a look here. Because the Institute was not authorised to sample the original materials from Giza Plateau quarries, naturally, they were not able to use the exact formula described in the ancient Egyptian text. The French limestone that was used in the test was very similar, but unlike the Giza limestone, had no reactive clay in it and the team was forced to add some. Nevertheless, the final result was extremely close to the consistency of that which is found in Egypt, both chemically and geologically. According to Davidovitz, with the Egyptian formula, the result is also slightly different because it requires bigger blocks for a better cohesion and is not particularly suitable for smaller items. However, even with the slight change of formula due to the differences in materials, these ground baking tests have clearly demonstrated the process is quite possible and the only real key to complete success of the procedure. Is in using the appropriate raw materials to begin with during a television special filled in 91 called the old pyramid we should try and find that professor Davidovitz had the opportunity to demonstrate his cutting edge theory and in the process to also demonstrate a a unique property of the Giza limestone that further supports his idea in the presentation a chunk of limestone taken from the nearby Giza, Giza quarry was very easily disaggregated in water within 24 hours Leaving the clay and other constituents gently separated from each other.
1: Hang on a minute! They've just taken some.
0: No, it was at uh, in, in it was in Egypt when he did it.
1: Yes, yes, yes. But the, they were claiming these other guys couldn't get any material, but then suddenly he was allowed to get. He was allowed to get at, some at some point because of this TV, TV show or something. Yeah.
0: This demonstration showed that the existing fossils in the limestone would naturally remain intact as it would not have been necessary to crush the stone during the manufacturing process, as unlike other limestone material from the Giza quarry simply breaks down in water all of its own. So you're just leaving the rock in the water and it's just breaking down and you just yeah. send it down the line. No, it's not. Whatever's in there is in yeah, there. Yeah,
1: so that's it. You're not... The whole thing is you're not crushing. Mm. So the fossils themselves aren't breaking down. They're staying in there, floating mm. around in little chunks and stuff. Mm. And then you're putting that into a mould.
0: Mm. Mm. Uh... As I mentioned before, all the credit must be given to Professor Joseph Davidovits of the Geopolymer Institute for his groundbreaking study into this process, and I highly recommend reading his work on the subject. We will, I think we will do that.
1: And what I like there is Davidovits is obviously um, one of this the same ilk that mm. are coming through like um, oh, shock. Yeah, yeah shock, so yeah. he's from the Geopolymer Institute. Yeah. He's so he's not, got qualifications. He's he's not an Egyptologist, so no. he's not bound to the paradigm. No. And he's using his expertise in a different area mm. to try and forward the argument. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, to, to mm-hmm, build mm-hmm. upon the theories.
0: And look, like- it makes sense. Well, if this is it, mate, uh, what's the rocket really? clock say? Yeah, that's the end. That's we, it. Yeah, that's we the next through chapter. That tonight. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, this certainly may go a good deal to helping explain how these ancient masses of stone may have been constructed yet. But again, we are still left with the question by whom were they made and for what purpose. And that's the end of the chapter. So I think,
1: well, so I think we leave it there. It's going to be a shorter one than usual, but we've got, we've got 15 minutes left
0: on the rocket clock, but we didn't set it until after the ads. So after that. I haven't taken the articles into account. So I think it's still an hour or so. So, yeah. Because uh, yeah, we don't want to. I think the ch- next chapter is called the death of a god, which we can't just start that and leave it fifteen minutes. You know what I no, mean? No, exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> we want to sort of get into that. So we'll leave it there. That's mm. um, been a good one, and mm. I think we put this one bet- together better than what we did yeah, last time.
0: Absolutely, I think it's much better. Well, we we we've stumbled upon the process.
1: Yes, you know and what I mean. Not only not only did we fail the process last time, but then. The technology decided to fail us as well, and so hence why we're re-recording this because the last time
0: it didn't record properly. It didn't record properly. We did, we we weren't sign. happy with it it. a sign from the universe. Um, however, anyway, that one was good, man. Until next time, dude.
1: Till we come back, chapter five: the death of a god. We'll see you next time, guys. God.
0: See you guys. Catches. Should we go again? Let's do it. Yeah. Go again. All right. I know you've been here before. No surprises. Settle the score. My time is through I know you I know you